Welcome to Mad Lit Musings, a podcast with Jamie Jill Wright, where we go deeper and ask the tough and dangerous questions. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravel and Bethany House Publishers, which are divisions of Baker Publishing Group. Find out more at bakerpublishinggroup.com. Hello, everyone. It is Janie Jo Wright with Madlet Musings Podcast. And today we have Christie Award winning author Sarah Sundin with us. And we've waited a while to call you a Christie Award winning author. I'm excited to I'm excited to announce you like that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so awesome. So Christie Award, Carol Award winner. And I know you have a very loyal fan base of readers too, because I hear about you a lot from, from people who love your books. So I'm very thankful for them. Yeah, I bet. I bet. But you have another book coming out, The Sound of Light, Mm -hmm. which comes out February 7th from Ravel Publishing. So we're here to talk about it. Let what 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 are we gonna see in this book? Because you are you're World War II, so I know where we're going. Yeah, so we are going to Denmark. Yeah, I know. And um I chose this setting because it's not one you see a lot in historical fiction. Mm. But they're fascinating stories. And as I was doing my research, you know, in other books, you know, the stories of Denmark kept popping up. I go, wow, I want to tell you, they're just, they're different um, than, than you see in a lot of mostly occupied countries, you know, they follow a certain pattern, but Denmark was very different. And also one of the most inspiring stories to come out of World War II was in Denmark. And that was the rescue of the Danish Jews. And when Mm -hmm. I story I thought it was so astonishing and so beautiful like I really want to work this you know into a novel so um I finally came up with my my hero and my heroine and um I'm so thankful Ravel let me write it because it is unusual setting and oftentimes it's harder to get the unusual settings published um so right thrilled was able to tell the story at last yeah that's interesting because I'm not sure that I've ever heard the story of the rescue of the Danish Jews because you mentioned that, and I'm like, that does not ring a bell. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, in a nutshell, um, before the war, there were over 7,000 Jews in Denmark. It was, it was okay. a population, but they were very well integrated. They had a lot of refugees from Germany and Poland. Mm-hmm. And um, when the Germans invaded, it was an odd situation in that the Germans saw the Danes as fellow Aryans. So they decided to make Denmark a model protectorate and they were going to be very nice to the Danes and let Denmark run itself, basically. They let their king remain on the throne. They let their parliament keep running. Their government ran as before with with some interference, but actually not a lot, especially when compared to the other occupied countries. They kind of let them do their own thing. Okay. And and so Denmark didn't have a history of anti-Semitism. So when the Germans started putting pressure on them to put in anti-Semitic laws, the Danish government said, no, I can do that. There are oh. fellow citizens. Would we do that? And so they didn't have, for three years, they had no anti-Semitic laws in Denmark. There, there were a few exceptions, but for in almost all situations, their Jewish citizens kept their jobs. They stayed oh. in their homes. They did not have to wear the yellow star. Just unusual situation yeah. Obviously, um you know Himmler and Goebbels and all those people were not happy with that, and they were just biding their time like well you know there's 7,000 Jews there we we can't have that happen in right know, right late yeah. German right so um they put pressure on the German 
his name, plenipotentiary in Denmark. And eventually he just issued an edict. Um, it's straight out of the book of Esther. Like on one night after Rosh Hashanah, they were going to round up all the Jews in Denmark. Oh my goodness. But they knew they were going to be at home. It was the Sabbath right after Rosh Hashanah. They knew they were all going to be home. So it'd be easy to round them up. And what they didn't count on was that there was a German shipping attache, um, Georg Duckwitz, who loved the Danes. He felt very fond of them. He'd been working there for years. And um, Werner Best, who was the plenipotentiary, mm -hmm. told Duckwitz about it. Duckwitz then went out and talked about risk to his own life. Went wow. out, told members of the Danish government who then went out and told the rabbis and the word spread throughout Denmark. And as one, the people of Denmark rose up and just basically said to all their Jewish neighbors, come stay at my house or here are the keys to my summer cottage in the country. And they hid almost all the Jews just wow. all around. And so when they went that night to round people up, they were only able to arrest 474. Now, granted, wow. 174 people that should not have been arrested, but right. Out right. Of 7, that was amazing. But then they had another problem. They've got 7,000 people in hiding. Yeah. That forever. And so with some pressure, um, international pressure, Sweden offered to take all the Jews. Okay. And get them across. There's 10 okay. miles between Denmark, you know, and Sweden. Mm -hmm. So the Danish people, these just ordinary people. They took them across in fishing boats and in private yachts and in the cargo holds wow. of ships and in rowboats and in kayaks, one by one. And they got all those people across. I mean, just outstanding. And then they weren't even done. Of those 474 people who were arrested, the, the Danish people kept pressure on the Germans. Like, we need to know about our people. What's going on with our people? And they they took him first to Theresienstadt, which is meant to be a transit camp in Rutschwitz. But because of the pressure of the Danish people, they never they kept them at Theresienstadt and even sent care packages with food and vitamins. And so there were 58 deaths of those 474. And oh, wow. a lot of them were elderly people. So yeah. You they, they might have passed away anyway, but they had the highest survival rate of, of Jewish population, any occupied country. And that was because of the common decency, humanity of the Danish people who said, you cannot do that to our people. They are our people. They are brothers and sisters. And the, the, that was just so beautiful and inspiring. Like I got to tell that story. Oh, no, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> How come that story isn't like more heralded? <laughs> and I think I think a lot of it is because the Danish people, their national character, they are very modest and unassuming. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the saying about the tall poppy and getting cut off, um, they they don't want to be the tall poppy, so they don't toot their own horn. Mm -hmm. um, this would happen in America, they'd be all over social media like right. Oh, yeah. Um, but not the Danes. They're like, oh no, I, I didn't do much. I just helped my neighbor. I yeah, you know, that's I just I rode a boat. I just we rode a boat. boats all the time. We rode boats. So yeah. it was very, because of that nature. And that made, uh, in general, it made research for this novel difficult because the members of the Danish resistance, um, the, the people who rescued the Jews, most of them said, oh, 
oh, I didn't do much. So they didn't really record their stories. Mm. So it's harder to find those stories than it is okay. in other nations. So I just had to do a little more digging and also trying to find sources that were not in Danish since. Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't speak Danish, huh? Wow. Shockingly, no. <laughs> I speak German. And sometimes you can, there's a, some similarities. You're like, oh, yeah, I see that, but not enough to translate page. Yeah. Or yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. And so that's the, that's the setting for that's the sound amazing. of light then. Okay. Wow. So tell me just a little bit then about your characters. Like who do we get to meet in this book? Well, you get to meet Baron Henrik Elefelt and he is a fun character. He is a nobleman before the war. He lived for himself. He was known as a playboy, a man about town, um, selfish, self, you know, he's just living for himself. Sure. And as soon as the Germans come, he just kind of has this shocker moment and goes, this is what my life is. And mm-hmm. I want more. I want to be more. I want to do more. And he um, is enlisted by his friend, um, Sven, who is a um, outspoken anti-Nazi. And he needs to escape because okay. <laughs> yeah. you know, the Germans are here. I need to get out of the country. Yeah. So he says, Henrik, and Henrik was on the Olympic rowing team. Okay. And he says, row me to Sweden. And okay. you, you can row that distance in your sleep. I couldn't do that, but he could. Right. And so Henrik does that. And as they're rowing them, as they're rowing across, um, Sven puts together this plan where Henrik could row messages back and forth between Denmark and Sweden. And um, Henrik decides this is a good thing for him, but he also knows he's well known in Denmark. He's also known as a member of the, the rowing team. So if the Germans get wind of, you know, a nobleman, mm-hmm. they're coming to his door. So he decides to go underground. He takes on a secret identity. And okay. Gosh, writing a secret identity was so fun. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he takes a job at the shipyard and becomes just a, a manual labor. And he, to conceal his noble upbringing, he basically doesn't talk much. And okay. very simple words. So everybody thinks he's not very bright and they treat him accordingly. And also oh. very humbling experience for him. And he's a nobleman. He's used to telling people what to do. And now he's being treated, not only bossed around, but treated like he's yeah. terribly bright. And, but it works for him. And um, so he has this, this, this set, second set of papers and um, he moves in in 1943. So he's been doing this for three years. He moves into a boarding house. And one of the residents is um, Dr. Elsa Jensen, um, who is a theoretical physicist. Oh my goodness, Sarah. <laughs> Could have made her a baker. <laughs> and that actually fit better because, you know, things and be loved yeah. Christian romance. Like, oh, she's baking chocolates and stuff like that. <laughs> her theoretical physicist because I I'm love a, it. And I was a chemistry major and also, the other thing when I was doing my research, the name of Niels Bohr kept popping up. And oh. Niels Bohr was a noble lord. He's a real man. He's a noble lord. And he, you know, his model, the atom, you know, revolutionized chemistry and physics. And he was instrumental in quantum mechanics. And he had an institute in Copenhagen. And um, he was also kind of on the fringes of the resistance, mm-hmm. um, very far fringes. And he also was half Jewish. So wow. he had to escape and okay. the order to arrest him and his wife and his sons. So 
he was part of the escape. And I thought, huh, what mm -hmm. if we're there? And I, I have, uh, I, this is actually probably a recurring thing for me is I mean, telling stories of women in, in, in a men's world. And I Love do it. back to that. It's just, especially for that era, but it's just mm -hmm. something resonates with me. I think probably grew up reading too many biographies of, you know, you know, women who were doing these things and it just resonates with me. And um, so telling the story of this woman who's um, not just trying to do this great research, but she's having to overcome some prejudice. And um, so that was fun. And the neat thing was that Niels Bohr himself, gosh, he was, I really wish I could have met him. He sounds just yeah. an outstanding man. He was very welcoming. He had lots of female physicists there. Um, treated them great. He had, um, he welcomed refugees. And so mm. he had Jewish refugees at his institute. And so he was just um, a very, a very humble man and a very um, generous man. And so it was, it was fun to include him in the story. And so yeah. Elsa, because she's a girl in this men's field, her senior physicist is mistreating her and like, oh, you're the girl, go make copies. Oh, yeah. So she kind of gets shamed mm -hmm. into these. So she learns how to use the mimeograph machine. And her best friend is working for um, the resistance within the resistance newspaper. And she says, uh, Elsa, we could definitely use some more mimeographing. Mm -hmm. You know how to use the machine. You have access. We know that Niels Bohr is, is at least partial to the resistance. Mm -hmm. And he eventually um, convinces Elsa to start printing newspapers for the resistance, which was not a very safe thing to do. Yeah. And so, and meanwhile, she's getting very intrigued by the ship worker at the, at the, the um, boarding house and just kind of senses more to him. And she just, uh, she senses um, depth of character to him mm -hmm. and is drawn to him. And she's, obviously then she's got to work with her prejudices because here she is and she's got a PhD and she's being drawn to a man who can barely read. And yeah. at least that's what she thinks. That's what she believes. Right. That's what she believes. And so she, you know, how, what do you do? I and I love her, her best friend. Who's, who's a little bit of a spitfire. And she was fun to write to. And um, so Lila tells her, you know, how many men do, you know, male scientists do we know who have women who and wives who are not well-educated? Um, nobody thinks of anything of it. Why is it different for women? <laughs> She's like, I love that. I was like, yeah, yeah, it shouldn't be. And she says, and yet it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that was kind of fun. So she was, you know, really confronting her own prejudices and, you know, the expectations of society and- right. Um, you know, what was more important to her was, you know, was it a man's education or a man's character? Yeah. Mm. I love that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's end this so I can go read this book. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't want to end it yet. But let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about the concept of courage, because that time period, um, courage is something you see all the time woven through these stories. And I just want to talk about courage in light of that and in light of today. And we'll, we'll do that when we come back. Are you enjoying today's broadcast with our featured author? You can find out more about them and other authors from Baker Publishing Group at bakerbookhouse.com. 
Use code MADLIT40 for 40% off any one Baker Publishing Group title at bakerbookhouse.com. This also includes Ravel and Bethany House Publishing. Go over fast. It's MADLIT40. That's your magic code for 40% off any one Baker Publishing Group title. Are you a writer wanting to go deeper in your writing and get to the heart of your story? Join Christie Award-winning author Jamie Jo Wright at madlitmentoring.com, where she will take you on an intimate, fun, and exploration of going deeper, the layers of your story, the four corners of foundation, and more. Find out how to be mentored by Jamie Jo Wright at madlitmentoring.com. everyone. We are back here at Mad Lit Musings with Sarah Sundin, a Christie award-winning, Carol award-winning Sarah Sundin. Um, she's not going to yell that out, so I'm just going to keep saying it for her. <laughs> but we've been talking about her release, The Sound of Light, which is set in Denmark. And we've been talking about the resistance there um, and the saving of the Danish Jews, which I have just learned a whole lot in the last, what, 15 minutes we've been talking. <laughs> it's fascinating. But I, I was saying before we took a break, um, the concept of courage is so often linked with obviously that time period and all the different things that took place. How did you see courage as it was woven into the story that you wrote and into the time period that you were researching? Um, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. It really was the theme of this story. And yeah. at one point, so Elsa is having problems. She's deciding whether she wants to help with the resistance. She's also having this problem with her senior physicist. And does she speak up? To him? And she is a um, a woman who is you know soft spoken. She's gentle. She hates confrontation. She mm-hmm. hates conflict. And so she has always told herself that um, how wonderful she is because she manages to hold her tongue when people insult her. And, and we all, yeah, that is a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so she prides herself on that. And, but as the situation with, with her boss is getting worse and worse and worse, and like all bullies, he sees somebody caving in as, well, now I've got to come down even harder. And mm-hmm. so she, being nice is not going to make the situation any better. Mm-hmm. And, and she has to, well, one thing, she has to learn the difference between being nice and being kind. And um, that is a crucial thing for her. But she realizes she needs to find the courage to speak up. And at one point, um, Henrik, and this is as 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 Hemming, the, the humble shipyard worker, um, tells her, sometimes silence takes much courage. Mm. And that really resonates with her. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah sometimes it does. It, ta- it is hard sometimes to, to hold your tongue and not say something. Um, right. It hurts somebody or when it would cause damage to relationship or um, in in case of World War II, where you could get somebody killed if you said the wrong thing. So yeah. there are times when being silent is a very courageous and is the right thing to do. And then Henrik says, but sometimes silence is nothing but cowardice. Mm. That really hits her hard. And she realizes in this situation, she's just being cowardly. She's telling herself she's being, um, you know, you know, wonderful and good by not speaking up. But in this case, not speaking up is actually cowardly. And to speak up would be the courageous thing to do. So both Henrik and Elsa throughout the whole story um, are wrestling with this concept of 
when is it courageous to be silent and when is it courageous to speak up and when is it the right thing to do just sometimes it's the right thing to do to be silent and sometimes it's the right thing to do to speak up and um pulling out all our motives for wanting to be silent or wanting to speak up and deciding what's the right thing to do and then having the courage to do it mm-hmm. yeah and that's difficult because it's such a fine line to walk yes um, and and sometimes you feel like if you don't speak up it's going to just get worse. And then there's other times when you do speak up and it just gets worse because you spoke up. And so exactly. <laughs> and sometimes we get that out. Oh yeah. And sometimes we speak up just, and that's purely pride. Well, you think right. voice. And um, then we, I, I mean, what's going on in our nation right now? It's everybody's mm-hmm. up and right. nobody listening and everybody beating each other up with their words. And it's just creating all this havoc and division. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we need a lot more silence in our country. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think social media is really helping with the concept of silence and listening. (laughs) No, no, it's not. And it's, it's a horrible, um, it it was kind of funny. Um, my husband was watching an email stream go from, um, lightly joking to people getting offended. And these are, Mm. you know, good friends of his who are Christians. Mm. And I was talking to him. I said, okay, whenever you were in person and somebody made that joke, you'd have seen a smile. You would have heard his tone of voice said oh yeah that's so-and-so being so-and-so right person would have said you know what that wasn't quite the most appropriate joke Mm -hmm. and oh yeah i'm sorry and but he would have said that in a very gentle and but firm way and they Mm -hmm. would would have been no but because it was an email and Mm -hmm. and like oh yeah you took all the nuance out of it you took the chill out of it you took um the facial expressions out of it that would have gentled everything and they would have it wouldn't even it wouldn't have been an issue, but because right. so, so social media even amplifies that because oh, it does even worse than email and people yeah. time I end up hiding people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hide a lot of people on Facebook, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know that about you. I like you personally as a friend. And now, right. I'm, <laughs> now I'm seeing you say some horrible, cruel things on social media, and I don't want to think of you that way. So I need to hide mm-hmm. you. No. And the funny thing is I've always found out too, I shouldn't say I've always found out, but I've always been of the opinion that nobody's changed someone's opinion on social media. Exactly. You know, and you know, you can have, you can take it offline and have really constructive disagreements. And I think those, it's, I think it's important to have moments of disagreement and Mm -hmm. understand somebody else's viewpoint, even if you don't agree with it, that's how you learn and um, continue to form opinions, but I think that's how you build trust with each other as mm-hmm. well. When you can have those constructive conversations and not turn into flinging insults and, exactly. you know, and really asking, you know, somebody from the opposite end of the political spectrum, and you really get to talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. You believe this, and it's often something either very personal or, um, that it actually stems from a value that they hold very highly. And it, right. it's, to look at that value. It's like, that is a good value, you know, right. treat others fairly or what, whatever right. that value is. And you, you go to that value and say, okay, there, there, we agree. We agree right. on that. Right. Post to you are evil because you think that we, our nation should X. Um, it's like right. their heart, they really want this, which is a value. Right. We want. But you can only get that when you're really talking to each other and t- right. asking questions. Like, why do mm-hmm. you uh, tell me, where does that come from? And, and respectfully, and, you know, and I've, I've had these conversations with people and it's, it can be very eye-opening, like, okay, I understand, yeah. I agree. 
And I hope you can understand why I believe what I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and not, you don't have to agree with me, but understand that and understand we're both coming from a position where we want something that is inherently good. And we just Absolutely. agree ways of getting there. But yeah, not right. social media. No, no, not at all. Oh man. Well, I, you know, and there's been times I've thought just, you know, going back to World War II a little bit, I've thought what it would have been like to have World War II and had internet, social media. I mean, how that would have changed the entire oh. face of the entire yeah. Yeah. time period. Yeah, it's very interesting. The, the story I'm writing right now um, features a BBC correspondent. And one mm. of the things he's wrestling with is, um, you know, complete truth versus censorship and mm -hmm. you know where sometimes the discretion is the right thing to do and sometimes right. the truth is, you know you know truth is always right but how much <laughs> of right. it you share right. and um you know in in the case of the blitz like well um 20 bombs just fell on <laughs> and, and the germans like thank you now we will adjust our navigation so we can hit the house of parliament even better that next time so in that case you know absolute truth would have been disastrous and they were right to not right everything and so they are wrestling this and i have you know all those reporter friends and talking about this and um it you know it's, it's a very interesting subject and like how what would have been like in world war ii if people were you know tweeting and posting videos and stuff like that mm -hmm. Oh, so I mean, I think a whole yeah. lot of in Europe would have gotten killed really quickly. <laughs> you know, but, yeah, well, not to mention all their photos would have their GPS coordinates right, uh, yeah. built into that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Going underground yeah. would be a lot harder back then. Oh <laughs> yeah, let's hope we don't have to do that in the future. <laughs> We're doomed. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, selfie oh wait no i just, oh. told, <laughs> I just told the evil emperor where i live i know exactly right oh my goodness well it is interesting though you know going back to the concept of courage um i love that time period and i think that's one of the reasons that that time period is so popular in fiction as well because there's a purity in the courage and there's a, a very I don't want to say it was all black and white because I'm sure there's lots of gray areas, but there's a lot more black and white between right and wrong. I mean, yeah, you can look at what was done to the Jewish community and be like, <laughs> wrong, Absolutely. you yeah. know, and you don't have to fight with, well, maybe in this situation, yeah, you, know. you know, you don't, there's none of that. Right. Um, but then the, the gray areas, and I love to explore the gray areas. It's like, yeah, for one thing, um, a lot of people didn't know, exactly what was going on and okay. they had idea they had some there were actually there was act, people like to say oh they didn't know people were getting killed until they found the concentration camps and that was not true there were in 1942 early 1942 they were already publishing reports of a million jews being killed in mm -hmm. you know in the soviet union poland so they weren't focusing on it but the knowledge was there but then you come to your own personal situation and do I risk my life mm -hmm. for someone I don't know? Right. Risk it for a neighbor? Do I right. risk a job? Um, do I risk my family? Mm -hmm. It's one thing, and there's, there's a reason almost such a high percentage of the resistance members in every country were young men. Yep. teenagers to their early 20s because they had nothing to lose they had no career they had no homes um they weren't married um they didn't have any children um they had parents but yeah 
20, you know, I don't yeah. Right, right. There was some adventure, but yeah, you do have that. I don't want to say devil may care because I'm sure they cared, but. They cared, but there, and then also obviously with young men, I mean, I, I have, well, I have unusual young men in my life. My, my, my two sons, um, one is extremely cautious. He would, he would probably not have done that. He's very, 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 um, very ethical and right-minded. He would have probably found some quiet way to do something, but he's also oh, not sure. to grab a gun. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, but you know, there's that, that sense of immortality that young yeah. men, yeah. and you know, that's why, you know, traffic accidents are, you know, mm-hmm. such a with, with young, young male drivers. Cause like, well, I can't die. I'll just jump off a boat sure I'll bounce <laughs> so, yeah. so and you yeah. put in a time of war and you add that with youthful passion and they were the first to resist and every nation yeah. was the young men and um and but then you start getting to and then it would happen a lot with the poor once again not much to lose right I mean people who have nice homes and nice jobs and you start thinking am I willing to risk this right and um, that's, that's where it gets a little gray and you wonder, mm-hmm. wonder mm-hmm. Yeah. would I have done that? And I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I think I would have, you know, helped my neighbor. Um, what I've gone past that and printed newspaper, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've thought of that too. You know, you put yourself in different situations and, you know, I always used to think, oh, sure. I would have been in the resistance. And that was in the days before I had kids. Well, now I have kids. Yeah. Mm. You know, no. and the Nazis weren't exactly nice about who they used to make mm-hmm. the break. You exactly. know, and it's one thing for me to go through some sort of interrogation; it's another to witness and watch them interrogate somebody completely innocent exactly. in order for me to break. And that, uh, yeah, mm. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole not a lot of moms narrative. involved. Not a lot of moms involved in the resistance. So yeah, yeah, and for probably really good that's reason. Okay. Honestly, yeah, I honestly think that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I do too. Yeah, that's their own point. That's their own sign of courage right there is they need to take mm-hmm. care of their families. I mean, there's exactly. a place for each person and you do hear, I know I've read books on the resistance in World War II and, and you hear the quiet stories that are, they're just such small things in light of the big things that they don't get shouted from the rooftops, but it's like the, the mother who has the little children at home and then she makes the extra bread rolls and quickly yeah. hides them in the bushes for the Jewish neighbors to yes. come grab in the cloak of darkness. And those are just as heroic. Oh, they yes. are. And yeah, just as necessary. And yeah. the thing is that, that strikes me, especially when learning about Denmark, it's like n- not very many people did big things. There were people who did big things. There was organized resistance. They did some big dramatic things, right. but almost everything was little things and yeah. people refusing to do the wrong thing and, and mm-hmm. doing the right thing. And it was those little things and taking in one neighbor, um, that didn't require that much work and that much effort, that much right. danger. Um, but they did great things because of that. And yeah. I think that's what speaks to me too. It's just that if everybody did something, something um, how how little the Germans would have been able to accomplish. Because mm-hmm. look at what happened in Denmark. Now, granted, they had some some extra situations there, which made their situation. Yeah. They're right right next to Sweden. Um, right. So none of those countries didn't have the same situation that Denmark did, but does speaks. I mean, in so many of the occupied country, the people betrayed their neighbors or if the French police rounded up the Jewish population, uh, the Germans ran, no, it was the French police. Right. And 
wow, if the French had re- refused to do that, mm. would have had to bring in more German soldiers to do that, which would have right. prohibited the, right. the war on the war. So um, so there's a, a lot of that's like if everybody just did something or refused to do the wrong thing, um, what would change? Prevent, yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation and we could probably talk for another two or three hours. Um, <laughs> Which means you just have to come back again, right? You just need to write another book and then come back. We'll talk about that one. <laughs> but Sarah, if people want to find out more about The Sound of Light that released from Ravel or releases on February 7th and uh, you know, the whole litany of other great novels that you've written, where where can they find out more about you? Um, well, my website is sarahsunton.com and I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at my name. I'm pretty easy to find. And um, I love to hear from readers and and people who love history and just come say hi. Sounds great. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Mad Lit Musings. You can find out more information about Mad Lit and all that it has to offer at madlitmentoring.com. That's madlitmentoring.com. Or check out more about Jamie Jo Wright at jamiewrightbooks.com. <laughs>